Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writing to Timothy, who was his closest ministry companion. Apparently, Timothy had gotten saved in Paul's ministry, in the early part of Paul's ministry. And he calls him his son in the faith. In writing to him, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear is the number one agent of the enemy. It's a spiritual force. Paul says by the Holy Ghost that it is a spirit itself. And it's something that the devil has used and, and continues to use throughout the history of the world. You may remember in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 where the Bible tells us about Israel coming to the edge of the promised land. God has delivered them with mighty signs and wonders from the bondage of Egypt. And then they come some two and a half years later perhaps to the edge of the promised land and the 12 spies go in to spy out the land. 10 of them come back with what the Bible calls an evil report and that just simply means that they let the circumstances convince them that they were unable to take hold of the promised land. They allowed the circumstances, the things that they saw in the promised land for the 40 days and nights they were there to create a fear in them that they would not be able to take hold of it. And is what happens in every case where the devil uses fear to attack the people of God, the things that they feared came upon them. They weren't defeated by the enemy. They weren't defeated by the people inside the, the promised land that they identified as being stronger than themselves. They were defeated by fear. Fear is the paralyzing agent of the devil. You remember the story of, of uh, Peter walking on the water to come to Jesus. Jesus had sent the disciples ahead and then in, in the early morning hours he came walking on the water. They saw him and said that they were frightened by it and so Jesus called out and says, don't worry, it's me. Peter then speaks to Jesus and as the way that he normally operates, he challenged Jesus to challenge himself. He challenged Jesus to challenge him. He said, Lord, if it be you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, folks, you, we all know how impossible that is. But it said Peter stepped down out of the boat and walked on the water to go to Jesus. He's experiencing one of the greatest events or things that we have in the Scripture that identifies the power of God as being greater than the physical laws of nature. But it says that while he was out there, 
he saw the wind boisterous and he saw the waves roaring and he began to be afraid. And being afraid, the, the Bible says, he began to sink. Now, I'm not sure how beginning to sink takes place. Seems to me that you're either on the water or you're under the water. I never knew there was middle ground between those two. But it, it specifically identifies Peter's fear as the thing that caused him to begin to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, pulled him back up all the way on top of the water, and they walked the rest of the way back to the boat. Jesus said, wherefore didst thou doubt? The devil uses fear with the purpose or for the purpose of stopping you from acting on God's word. The thing about Peter beginning to sink, there's only one thing that could have stopped him from walking on the water. Now, folks, it's not doubt in your mind. Doubt in your mind can't stop you. The devil will speak doubt to your mind and try to convince you that it was you all the time, that the doubt and the fear is yours rather than from him. There's only one thing that could have stopped Peter from continuing to walk on the water to Jesus, and that was if he had disobeyed the one word that Jesus said, which was the word come. The only thing that could have kept Peter or robbed him from this, the continuation of this miracle, the finishing result of this miracle is if he stopped coming to Jesus. That's all Jesus said. He said, come. So Peter's movement had to have been stopped for this great miracle to end. What caused him to stop? What he saw and what he felt. What he saw and what he felt. I'll say it again. Fear is the paralyzing agent of the devil. It's the paralyzing force, the paralyzing spiritual force of the enemy. Now I want you to look with me to a couple other scriptures real quickly. Isaiah chapter 41. God says through the prophet, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Folks, even as we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, fear is a spiritual force. And as a spiritual force, it can be rebuked and should be rebuked. But it's not enough just to rebuke fear. You've got to have something to replace the fear that the enemy brings against you. Amen. It's kind of like what I heard one person say about renewing the mind. Renewing the mind is like changing a diaper on an infant. It's not enough just to put a new diaper on there. You've got to clean out what the problem is to begin with. We have to renew our minds. We have to fill our minds with the truth so that we have something to stand against fear with. The foundation to overcome fear 
And the only thing that will do that is the truth of God's word. Look with me now to Isaiah chapter 54. I want you to see the relationship between the attack of the enemy and what you do about fear. Isaiah 54 verse 14, it says, In righteousness shalt thou be established, for thou shalt be far from oppression, for or because thou shalt not fear. And from terror, terror will be far from you too, for it shall not come nigh thee or near thee. Notice the relationship between oppression and fear. The way you keep oppression away from you, the way you keep yourself in victory rather than succumbing to the devil's work against you and work in your life is to keep yourself from fear. Oppression shall not come nigh thee or shall, not, shall be far from thee because you don't fear. Refusing to fear is what keeps you in victory. Terror shall not come nigh thee because you don't fear. Folks, the devil's working overtime against us at this point in time in our existence, in our Christian life, as well as this point in time in our country by trying to generate fear. Have you noticed how many things have changed from what they were predicted to be as opposed to how they turned out? This coronavirus, there have been so many things about this that have not turned out to be true. There's a lot of things that we've been lied to by the government or by government agencies. We were told that we had to have this vaccine, that it was imperative that this vaccine be developed. One of the larger pharmaceutical companies that was working on two different types of vaccines just in this last week have stopped in their production of the vaccine. You know why? Because of the successful results of the vaccines that they're developing were less effective than the recovery rate of the, of the disease itself. They said that the recovery rate for the coronavirus is 99.9%. That means 0.1% is the true number of the population that has died because of this virus. But when it first came out, it was going to kill 100 million people in America. Remember? Remember all the, the necessary and emergency actions that were instituted because of this deadly, deadly, deadly disease. Now, folks, the problem with this is that we all, most of us at least, know somebody that has died from this coronavirus. And so to say things and present factual statements like we just did seems to be uncaring. Anybody that died from the coronavirus was too many if there was some way to stop it. 
So the news media, always our friends, continue to promote lies and disinformation. And it's the way the devil works. They may not even know that they're working for the devil. But they'll find out one of these days when he, they cash his pay, the, the paycheck. I'm a law and order type guy. I want justice. There are people I still want to see perp walked into prison. Now, you don't know who I'm talking about. But remember back to what Paul told Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's examine those three things for a moment power, love, and a sound mind. There's a lot of things that can be attributed to the power of God. For example, Jesus said that whatever we ask of, of uh, God, the Holy Spirit will be the one to give it to us. So we know that there is power in the Holy Spirit, not just manifestations of the Holy Ghost, but different workings of the Spirit of God. We also know that there's power in the name of Jesus. Jesus said whatever we ask for in his name would be done. So that has to be included in the power that Paul is talking about that's been given to us. But I think first and foremost, because of what we know about Paul and the different things that he wrote to us. For example, in Romans 1.16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, both to the Jews and the Gentiles. So when he talks about the power of God that's been given to us, I think primarily, even though the other things are included, I think primarily he's talking about the power of the word. Paul always put the word first. That's an example for us. And ministries that succeed and finish the course that God has given them always put the word first. That's one thing about Brother Hagin that he was just relentless about. With the different manifestations of the Holy Ghost and the, uh, that uh, go along with the office that he stood in, with all the things that he had to, to recount and things that he told us stories concerning, he never let anything get more important to him than the Word. He talked about during the healing revival and uh, from... 1947 to 1955 or thereabouts. He talked about the, the different ministries that were used by God in significant and miraculous ways through signs and wonders and miracles. And he talked about how that so many of those never really finished their course. They were doing what God had for them to do for a while but after a while, and most of the time it was a short while, then they went out, they passed away and went off on the scene. And he said, and he told them at the time, when all of you fellows are gone, I'm still going to be here. And he was. And he told them why. 
He said, you guys are building your ministries on the gifts of the Spirit. But I'm building mine on the Word. Folks, nothing can ever be more important to us than the Word of God. God honors His Word. He watches over His Word to perform it. So if the Bible is talking about, if Paul's talking about the power of God as being the Word, which would stand to reason that he is, then there's something about the Word, there's something about our instruction in the use of the Word that's more important than fear, that's stronger than fear. We looked at the parable that Jesus told about the unjust judge. I believe it was last Sunday. And there was a woman that came to him repeatedly to this unjust judge. He didn't regard man or God. He trusted in himself, apparently. And so to begin with, he wouldn't avenge her, which was her request. In other words, she's looking for justice. And he wouldn't do anything to help her for a while, but she wouldn't give up. Jesus, the scripture tells us that Jesus told them this parable to teach them how important it was to continue in prayer and never give up. Finally, the unjust judge said to himself, not because I'm on her side and not because I really uh, care anything about her, but because she's annoying me because she won't give up, then I'm going to turn things around in her favor. But then Jesus said right at the end of that, he said, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Well, if he adds faith to that parable, then he's got to be talking about not giving up in faith not releasing your faith or turning loose of your faith, but rather to stand strong and continue to believe for what God's word promises. Your faith life is more important than us seeing justice in our country. Our faith life, our trust in God is much more important than for wrongs to be righted in the political scene of our nation. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of power. The power of God is available to us. Over and over and over again, it talks about when the wicked rise up, that's the point in time for us to put our trust in God. There's nothing more important, folks, than you and I trusting in God no matter what we see going around us. You may be like me and would like to see some things, some justice administered because of the obvious things that are going wrong or going against that which is true and that which is righteous. But the Bible says that vengeance is God's. He will repay, the scripture says. 
So there's never been a time that's more important for us to continue to be doers of the word, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel. One of the things that God said would never end after the, the flood in Noah's day, God put the rainbow in the sky as his eternal promise that he wouldn't destroy the earth again with water. He said, as long as the rainbow is in the sky, seed time and harvest will not end. That means the law of sowing and reaping is still in effect. Now, one of the things the devil is going to try to use fear to affect you and me is try to make us think that if we give, if we step out and act on the word in these perilous times, that we won't have enough. But folks, the time that it looks like the greatest opportunity exists for us to go under, that's the time for us to continue acting on the word. Give and it'll be given to you is always going to work. No matter what the political scene is, no matter who's in charge, no matter who's doing what. Give and it'll be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Shall men give unto your bosom. Now folks, I'm not just talking about giving finances, although that is a part of it. And I'm not trying to increase our offerings. We've said very little about anything regarding offerings or giving or whatever. And we're still pretty much at the same place we were before everything went sour. I consider that to be the hand of God. So I'm not trying to get you to give more so the church has more. I'm not worried about the church not meeting my salary or being able to pay my salary or anything like that. Because even if the church wasn't able to pay my salary, God would still take care of me because his word's true. but we need to be wise enough to recognize the way the enemy is going to attack us. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. You remember what God's eternal law was that he declared to the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, after they failed to take the promised land after they yielded to fear and forfeited the very thing that they were afraid they would not receive. God says, as truly as I live. In other words, God who is eternal and unchanging said as eternal and unchanging as I am, so shall it be in this respect as you have spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. Well, folks, that's the operation of faith. Jesus identified faith in Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. 
Paul went, went on uh, a little bit further and talked about the fact that we have the same spirit of faith as God himself. We have a measure of the, of the faith of God that created the universe. And he said it this way. Paul said it this way. We believe and therefore speak. Therefore, we have the same spirit of faith as God the Father. Folks, let that sink in. You've got a measure of the God kind of faith, the same faith that created the universe. Now, don't go trying to create another universe because that's not in our purview. It's not in what God would have us to do. But just as surely as God created the universe with words, our words can create our own life or can change our lives to line up with what his word says is ours. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's take these a little bit out of order. Let me talk about the sound mind part. This word that's used for sound mind is the only time that it's used in the, in the New Testament. But it goes back to and is related to the different scriptures that talk about sober-mindedness. For example, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul said, For I say unto you through the grace that's given unto me to every man that is among you not to think more highly King James says of himself, but that was added, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. That word sober means soundness of mind. Now what do we think of when we talk about and use the word sober or soberly in our modern vernacular? We're talking about somebody that comes out from under the influence of something else. We hear about people that get drunk and then have to sober up. What does that mean? Well, the condition of being sober is a condition whereby you're not under the, alcohol, uh, under the influence of alcohol any longer. The root word from which sober or soberly is taken means not moved by emotion. Folks, fear will deal with your emotions. Fear is an attack upon your emotions. The devil wants to get you worried. He wants you to live worried because if he can get you to live worried, then he can get you under the influence of your emotions. And you can't touch God with emotion. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted at all points like as we are. And so he has compassion for us. He understands the feelings of our suffering. But we don't contact God by feeling. We contact God through his word. God's under no obligation to operate in any way whatsoever to meet or to satisfy our emotions. 
But when we can set aside the emotions, when we can set aside the influence of fear, when we can look beyond the circumstances, like the two spies, Caleb and Joshua did, when they came back from spying out the land. They all saw the same thing. Ten of them said that the, what they saw meant that God couldn't deliver the promised land to them. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, well, we saw the same thing, saw the same walls around Jericho. We saw the same strength of the people. But the whole reason that we're here is because God said this promised land was ours. And so they overcame the emotion. They overcame the fear that was generated by the circumstances of the promised land. So when the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and of a sound mind, it means there is the ability of God, the God-given ability that resides on the inside of us to deliver us from the end result of our emotions, to deliver us from the fear that the devil tries to generate through circumstances and events. Emotional decisions are never good ones. How many times have we made decisions about what we do with our money or purchases or things like that based on emotion that we look back and we think that was a dumb thing to do. But it felt so right at the time, didn't it? The Bible says that the man that believes God does not make haste. Faith will keep us from being swept away with the emotional idea that we've got to do something and got to have it now. God wants us to look at the word for what it is. It is an eternal and unchanging spiritual force of God. Just like fear is a spiritual force from the devil. The kind of faith that soundness of mind or sober thinking brings is a spiritual force that will last throughout eternity. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. Now let's talk about love. James calls it the royal law of love. In other words, he puts that, he puts the love of God at the top of the list of things that God has for us and things that God has given to us. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts at the new birth. Well, what are we going to do with that love? The love of God is already on the inside of you. What are you going to do with it? We have a choice to either develop it and walk in love, the God kind of love, or to let it stay dormant and become an easy prey of the devil. John said, 1 John chapter 4, John says, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. 
Now the love that Paul that uh, John is talking about primarily is not talking about you walking in love towards your brother. He gets into that later on. But the perfect love that casts out fear is an understanding of God's perfect love toward us. See, the reason that perfect love casts out fear is because we recognize all the characteristics and all the attributes, all the promises to be afraid of. Paul writing to the Romans said, if God be with us, who can be against us? Paul quoted the Old Testament writing to the Hebrews. And said that God was with us. There's no need to fear. What can man do unto us since God is on our side? Well, that's exactly what we just read in Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. What does he mean, fear not? Does he mean don't be afraid of finances? Or does he mean don't be afraid of sickness and disease? Or is it an all-encompassing promise where he means don't be afraid of anything? Folks, if we live our lives not afraid of anything because we trust in God, not because we stick our head in the sand and, and ignore what's going on around us, but because we trust in his provision, we trust in his deliverance. We trust his word to come to pass in our lives. Then what do we have to be afraid of? If the devil can't get you afraid, what can he do to you? Absolutely nothing. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8. He said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. By continuing in the word, we know the truth. And that truth will set us free. Will set us free how? In every respect. The Bible talks about being delivered in every respect by the blood of Jesus. There's not one area of life that the blood of Jesus hasn't covered. Not one. Paul talked about the love of God. He defined it this way. In Romans chapter 13, verse 10. He said, love worketh no evil to his neighbor. No ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Folks, if not doing anything ill or evil to your neighbor is the proof of the love of God, then that means anything that's done against us would be done out of hate. That would have to be true, wouldn't it? Well, if that's the case, then the largest hate group in America is the Democrat Party. That has to be true. 
because the things that the new administration has put in effect sure doesn't benefit you and me. Well, if it's working ill toward us, then it has to be motivated by the opposite of the love of God. Now, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5 real quick. Look with me to verse 17. For if or since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, talking about Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost that righteousness is not just some condition is a means of exercising our authority and dominion on the earth. What good does it do to know that God made man to have authority on the earth if we can't ever tap into that authority for our benefit? Now, folks, it doesn't have to be this way. God didn't have to set it up like this. But notice what he says. He says it's those that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. God's intent to make us righteous by the blood of Jesus so that we walk in victory in this earth. Where is therefore any room for the devil to destroy us? If we looked at, I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. He's talking about victory because of righteousness. Then Isaiah 54, verse, what was it, verse 14? In righteousness, we are established. That word established means standing strong so that we do not topple over. In other words, it means to be able to endure the storms of life. In righteousness, his righteousness, we are established. Well, what does that righteousness do for us? It keeps us free from fear and therefore from oppression and terror. Oppression shall not come nigh us because we do not fear. Why don't we fear? Because we're established in the reality that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now when I said it before, it's not just enough to renew our minds like changing the diaper, but instead we have to have something that we can use as an attack or a weapon against the enemy. Remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil, he always responded with what the word says. 
Satan couldn't overcome Jesus because Jesus spoke the word. He knew enough about what the word said was his to be able to use it against the devil when he came. We have to learn to do that same thing. We have to learn to use that righteousness and recognize that the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that's been made unto us. We have to recognize that that sets us apart from any and every work of the devil. Now, it won't set us apart unless we use faith toward it. In other words, since faith works by believing in the heart and saying with the mouth, it requires our speech. We having the same spirit of faith as God himself, we speak, we believe, and therefore speak. We've got to begin to say that we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you may begin saying it with fear and trembling at the beginning. But it comes down to accepting the word of God to be true. See, your feelings say you're not righteous. Your feelings of unworthiness, perhaps, lead you or point you toward being afraid that you'll never measure up. But the Bible says you've already measured up because Jesus is the measuring stick. One of those two things are true. Which one is it? It's a guaranteed and established fact that Jesus was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, whether you accept that truth beyond just the forgiveness of sins is up to you. Won't it be sad for millions and millions of Christians to get to heaven and find out that they had power here on the earth to do things and change things that they didn't know they had? I think a lot of people are going to cry when they get to heaven because they'll see what life they could have had. They'll see what life they could have lived if they had only acted on the word, if they had only accepted the word of God to be true. There seems to be a tendency in some people, maybe not everybody, but in some people, to want God to try to talk them into righteousness. But that's not the way he operates. Instead, he operates by telling us what his word says revealing himself through his word and then gives us the choice on whether or not we're going to agree or not. That brings us to our final point. Jesus said, well, let me tell you the story before I quote scripture. Probably more than 20 years ago, Beth and I were going to a conference, a pastor's leadership conference that John Osteen was uh, conducting in Houston, Texas. 
And there were some things that were taking place in the body of Christ at that time that I won't go into, but there were some very obvious things, obvious to me at least, about things that were being done unjustly, people that were leading others, ministers that were leading others astray. And I don't remember why I was so exercised about that. But we were sitting on the plane waiting to take off to fly to Houston. And I just started going down point by point to Beth and identifying what was being done in the name of Jesus that was contrary to what God would do. And I continued on probably longer than I should have. And all of a sudden, she just started rebuking me. She began to tell me how wrong I was for speaking out. Just telling her, I don't mean speaking out in public. But the things that I was saying to her, she just didn't agree with them. And so she told me, in no uncertain terms that I had no right to say what I was saying. Well, rather than get in an argument about it, I chose to walk in love. <laughs> One of us is going to have to. So I accepted that it was going to have to be me. And I just didn't respond at all. Didn't say another word about it couple of days into this conference it was there was a, a question and answer session and somebody brought up the subject that I had talked to Beth about and for the next 15 minutes or so John Osteen said exactly the same thing that I had said to Beth on the plane point by point by point I never felt so vindicated in my life <laughs> But here was, and she, she wound up apologizing even before it was over while we were still sitting in the meeting. But here's where the difference was. This was the difference between me and Brother Osteen at that time. Somebody, after he finished talking about this, and he didn't hold back, he named names. He said everything that I had said prior to and maybe a little bit more. And then somebody asked him a question. I mean, the place got deathly silent while he was saying these things. And then after he was done, somebody said, Brother Osteen, how can you say these things and stay in the love of God, walk in the love of God toward them? Let me start in verse 43. You have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The word despitefully means on purpose. That you may be children of your father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good 
and sendeth rain on the, un, on the just and on the unjust. Folks, we have a responsibility to pray for the people that are doing wrong in our country. We have a responsibility to pray for the ones that are the most evil and working the most evil against the church, the people of God. That was the difference between me and John Osteen back those 20 some odd years ago. I wasn't praying for anybody. I was just reveling in my wisdom to see what was going on. Brother Osteen, on the other hand, was using the wisdom that he had to see what was going on and to warn the people that were following him of the dangers of what was going on. But he went further and was praying for the people that were in error. We have a responsibility to do the same thing today. Back up a couple of verses to verse, wait a minute, lost it. Verse 38, you have heard that it has been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Folks, that's justice. That's what things ought to be if truth is going to prevail. You've heard that it's been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. What does this mean? That means that an armed resistance is not in the church's future. I've had people ask me, what do you do when they come for your guns? Based on what Jesus said, we don't resist them. Remember, the Bible says that we have weapons, but they're not earthly weapons. They're spiritual weapons, and they're mighty through God to accomplish their purpose. I was praying the other day for one of the individuals in our government And I got to tell you, folks, I'm really concerned for some of these people. Some of these guys, when they get up in front of the camera, they look like they're going to pop a blood vessel. I mean, they are so exercised by their faith, by their hatred, that it looks like in some cases they could fall dead right on the spot. But while I was praying, and I can't say that this is something that I know what's going to happen or how it's going to happen. I can't even say for sure that it was something the Holy Ghost gave me. But I do know that I was praying in the Spirit. And all of a sudden I had a vision or imagined 
what the circumstances would be like during Paul's conversion experience. You remember Paul was saved on the road to Damascus? There was a light that shined round about Paul and his company and, and they all fell to the ground. Paul was on his way to Damascus to put more Christians in jail, maybe put some to death. But because of who Paul was, Saul at that time, his name hadn't been changed yet, because of who Saul was and the encounter that he had with Jesus, Paul was the guy that knew where the bodies were buried. He had an end with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, which was all they had at the time. He knew those things better than the Jews did themselves. And it became the foundation for everything that he wound up telling us and writing to the church. Because Jesus, by the Holy Ghost, brought the Old Testament to his understanding in a much, much, much greater way than he had before. What if somebody that knows where the bodies were buried had a similar encounter with Jesus today? Can you imagine how things would be turned on its ear? Now, I, I, I left that time of prayer really hoping that was God. It certainly wouldn't have been the devil. So either I imagined it or the Holy Ghost was showing me something. I'll leave it up to you to decide. Because I can't say for sure that I know one way or the other. But it reminded me of the Old Testament when Elijah was a prophet. The Bible identifies Elijah as by the works that he performed as one of the greatest prophets alongside Moses. You remember that when Jesus was transfigured, Peter, James, and John were there. It was Moses and Elijah that appeared to Jesus. Tell me one thing Elijah preached. We don't know. There is not one scripture made about what Elijah said. Elijah was there to be the personal tormentor of King Ahab. That's the only interaction we have with Elijah in any way whatsoever except when he commissioned Elisha to take his place. Outside of that, it was Elijah comes on the scene out of nowhere and says in the presence of the king, it's not going to rain till I say so. And then he took off. He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't preach repentance. He just simply said, it'll rain when I say so and not before. Then the Bible tells us about how God sent him into the wilderness and provided for him. First, a little brook, a little trickle of water, and the ravens bringing him bread twice a day, flesh and meat. I'm sorry, bread and meat twice a day. After that, when the stream dried up, 
he sent him to a certain city and there was a woman there at Zarephath that the, had the little cruise of oil and the handful, handful of flour that lasted throughout the rest of the drought. Then Elijah is sent by God back to Ahab to challenge the prophets of Baal. You remember the story? Elijah said, how, how long halt you between two opinions? If God's God serves him, if Baal's God, then let's forget about God, Jehovah God. Well, you know the story. Fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice when Elijah simply prayed. And his prayer was incredibly simple. He said, Lord, show them that you're the God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done these things at your word. And fire fell and consumed the sacrifice, vaporized the, the rocks in the altar, vaporized the water that he's poured on everything, and now it's collected in a ditch. And then Elijah personally killed the 450 prophets of Baal with a sword. Some jobs are too important to farm out. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, hears the news and then says to the people that are there, by this time tomorrow, I'll do the same thing to Elijah that he did to the prophets of Baal. So Elijah starts running. He winds up on the mountain uh, under a 